Spiritual sight is the difference between a powerful, vibrant life in Christ and a lackluster life in Christ. So my prayer tonight as we go through this text is that we would see Jesus more clearly for who he is, for what he came to do, and we'd have our vision of him and in him renewed. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. As Pastor Dave said, we thank you for the bread of life that nourishes us. We thank you that you give us spiritual sight. Lord, as we open this tonight and we read your word, I pray along with the Apostle Paul, Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. God, I pray as I speak on this tonight that you would become greater and I would become less. Show us who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Mark 8, verses 27 to 33 is where we're going to focus tonight. I'm going to read it, and then I'll introduce our text. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. All right, well, I'm going to hold this in case it comes on. Oh, I think, I think I'm coming through now. Great. Fantastic. All right, sorry, guys. Thank you for joining us from the intermission. Um, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you see a question come up many times. Who is this? Who is this man? Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in the temple, and he casts a demon out of a possessed man. And they say, who is this? He brings a teaching with authority, and even the demons flee from him. You see in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is on a boat with his disciples, and he calms the storm. And after that, they say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Mark chapter 6, he's teaching publicly, and he's confounding the religious leaders of his day. And people say, who is this, and where does his wisdom come from? It's a constant question throughout the first eight chapters of Mark. And here we are. 
right in the middle of the book, and it's kind of the hinge on, on which the entire book turns, where we see Peter's confession, and we see Jesus clearly explain who he is and what he came to do, and then the whole rest of the gospel is showing us exactly what that is supposed to look like. So here we see that question finally answered about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I want us to come away with a couple points tonight. To see Jesus clearly, we have to embrace his true identity, and we have to embrace his true mission. So first, his true identity. This is who Jesus is. We're going to look back at verses 27 to 30. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, On the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. If we looked at Matthew chapter 16, which is Witt's favorite version of this uh, gospel passage, uh, you see Peter say a little bit more. He says, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus tells him that he's right. He says, blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So we know that Peter gets it right here. At least in this respect, Peter knocks it out of the park when he says Jesus is the Messiah. There's an important thing here that happens. He first asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, hey, there's these other things. Plenty of people liked Jesus in his day. He did miracles. He had lots of wisdom. He did some pretty amazing things. And people had all kinds of ideas about who he was. Elijah, John the Baptist, other heroes in the nation of Israel. People can make all kinds of conjecture about who they thought Jesus was. All of them wrong, right? They tried to put him in human terms. But Jesus said that Peter and his disciples were right when they said that he is the Messiah. And that second question that he asks, he digs deeper, not just who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? He's telling them that they're not going to give an account for what other people think, but they're going to give an account for what they make of who Jesus is, and they need to have it right. Now, what Peter says is that he's the Messiah. Your translation, I think if you have the ESV, it would say the Christ. It means the anointed one. It's this figure that all throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they were always waiting for this promised one to come along who would come and redeem the nation of Israel. This would be the person that is talked about in Genesis 3.15 when God said that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. So some descendant of Eve after the first sin would one day come and crush the head of Satan. It's the same one that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that one day his seed would bring blessing to all the nations. It's the same one that when we look through the kings of Israel and they're always longing for the perfect king, the one that would finally come along and be a sinless king, they were always looking for that. They were always looking for one who would finally redeem them and restore Israel to what it's supposed to be. But throughout the Old Testament, we see failure after failure amongst the kings and the leaders, uh, these human leaders that they were given. If we look at Isaiah chapter 9, I would say that this is probably one of the passages that was in mind for Peter, who was a, a trained Jew in his day, uh, probably one of the passages that he had in mind when he thought about the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And all throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, we see so many prophecies of this promised one who would one day come, the servant of the Lord. And I think that's what was in Peter's mind when he said this. These shadows throughout the Old Testament of one who would come and be this anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And Peter knows that, Jesus, whoever you are, you're that. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. At least when we think about who Jesus is, Peter got it right. You know, in our world today, people will tell us all kinds of different things that they think Jesus is. Jesus was a wise man. He was a good moral teacher. He gave us good things to think about. He was a great philosopher. If you ask someone who subscribes to the religion of Islam, they would say that he's a great prophet. But not the Messiah. Not the son of the living God. But it is absolutely critical for us that we know who Jesus truly is, that he is a member of the triune God, that he is the son of of the living God, that he is the Messiah sent to be the savior of the world. We need a personal understanding of that. That's what you will give an account for one day. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this also requires that we have to be acquainted with the word, right? Again, I think that Peter had this understanding because he knew that these promises were there and someone had to come to fulfill it. And when he saw Jesus in the ministry that he did and the things that he said, he said, okay, you're it but it required an understanding of the word that promised Jesus all the way through. So for you and me, we live on the other side of Jesus' ministry. We have the New Testament. We have more information than they ever did. But it's still so critically important that we're acquainted with God's word, that we know the promises that Jesus came to fulfill. We know that he is the one who fulfills it. So develop a personal understanding, a personal embrace of who Jesus is. Be acquainted with his word in such a way that you can say for yourself that you believe, you know, you stake your faith on the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But it's not only his identity, it's not only who he is, but it's what he came to do that we also have to understand. We also have to embrace. So we need to embrace his true mission. This is where we look at verses 31 to 33. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man, the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly or plainly about this. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So we see here that Peter had this part wrong. He got rebuked by Jesus. He got called Satan by Jesus, because he heard Jesus say, hey, look, I am the son of man. I am the Messiah, but I have to suffer. I have to die. I'll rise after three days. But this whole thing just confused Peter and the disciples. And they said, no, 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 Jesus, that's not you. Well, you remember Isaiah chapter nine? The government's going to be on your shoulders. You're going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Like, you're not going to get killed. You're not going to suffer. We're about to win. Here's Peter under the oppression of Rome, always looking for this Messiah who is going to come and liberate Israel, and he missed the fact that Jesus came to be the suffering servant. Again, I I think that probably Isaiah 9, those types of verses were in the back of Peter's mind when he thought about who Jesus was, but I think what he was missing was something like Isaiah chapter 53. 
Let's look at Isaiah 53 and read more prophecies about who the Messiah was meant to be. I'm just going to start in verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Continuing on, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. See here a picture that's very different from what we see on the surface in Isaiah chapter 9, but Isaiah 53, the, the, the seeming defeat, the crushing of the servant had to happen before the exaltation that we see of the king in Isaiah chapter 9. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is like, yes, Isaiah 9 is coming, but don't forget Isaiah 53. He came to be rejected before he would be enthroned. This is what we have to see. After that, he, Jesus, we don't have time to get into this scripture, but Jesus even calls his disciples that I'm taking up my cross, and if you want to follow me, you have to as well. You have to know that you may be rejected for following after me. So get used to the likelihood of suffering. And of course, his earliest followers went through a lot of it, probably that we don't experience. But that was necessary to what he came to do. And this is how Jesus absorbed our sin and defeated it, right? He had to undergo the punishment for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God for our sins, to take it into the grave with him and rise victoriously after three days. This suffering was absolutely necessary. And that's why he rebuked Peter for not understanding it. He's siding with Satan in the sense, if you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he said, you can, you can just be exalted. I'll give you the kingdom of the world. It'll be easy. Just step into it. Peter sounds a, a bit like that, right? He's like, no, just, just take over. And Jesus says, no, I must suffer first. And for us, we have to know that the gospel, the, the work on the cross that he accomplished, his perfect life, his sacrificial death in our place, and his resurrection is absolutely central to who Jesus is and to what he came to do. 
Sometimes we can embrace, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. That's great. But functionally, we can think that his ultimate purpose is to make our lives comfortable, right? And I, I know this is a church that teaches great doctrine, so probably none of you would say that on paper, right? But when push comes to shove and we go through circumstances in our life and we encounter suffering, we start to question, Jesus, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are, are you taking care of me? Are you providing for me? We begin to question that when ultimately his main purpose is not to make our lives comfortable, not to make our lives easy, but his main purpose is to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could have eternal life in him. That's ultimately what he came to do. When things are great and when circumstances are good in this life, that's fantastic and that's God's grace towards us, but that is not central to what we should expect in this life. That is for the life to come. Just the same way that Jesus, when he came to earth, he came to suffer, to die for sin, and then be exalted. The same for us. This is a broken world full of the effects of sin. One day in Christ we'll be exalted and we'll be in a world that has no suffering, no pain, no death anymore. But in this life, we should expect it to be broken. And we should expect him to carry us through it by what he did for us on the cross. So again, we have to be acquainted with his word, not just the parts that we like, but all of it, to fully understand not only who Jesus is, but also what he came to do. We have to centralize ourselves on the gospel message of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And I know that's what your elders here aim to do, is it from every passage of scripture to point us back to how this relates to Jesus' central work in his earthly ministry on our behalf to save us from sin. And we have to be willing to identify with his suffering in this life and in this world because that is what we should expect. It's what he tells us we need to follow after. So if we're going to see Jesus clearly and have full life in him and full commitment to him and vibrancy in our relationship with him, we have to know who he is, what he came to do. We have to embrace his true identity and his true mission. If you're like me, you probably get frustrated that our vision of Christ blurs at times, right? You may get frustrated with yourself when you know that you're not seeing him for who he is, when you know that you're not treasuring him the way that you should, when you feel like you just can't see him at work in your life, and you're not worshiping the way that you know that you should. But what's so beautiful about this, not just that this call to embrace his, his identity and his mission stands before us, but that Jesus is the one himself who opens our eyes. Jesus himself is the one who gives us spiritual sight and spiritual understanding. What I want to do is go to something that happens just before this conversation between Jesus and Peter and the rest of the disciples and show you a miracle that happens that I think is a parable of this spiritual reality. So let's back up just a few verses and read Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. This is a miracle that maybe you find a little bit odd, but I think it's for a reason, and I think it goes right with what we've read so far tonight. Verse 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So again, this is an odd miracle. Jesus spits on his eyes and puts his hand on it. That's just weird. Don't know why he had to do that. Don't really have an answer for you there. But also the healing comes in two stages. Did, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning? Was he struggling for a connection with the Father? You know, did he lose his healing powers for a minute? Like, what was going on there? Now, this two-stage healing, I think Jesus intentionally did this to show a spiritual reality that it's a process, and that through the process, he's patient with us. Jesus could have just snapped his fingers and his sight was restored, but he took him by the hand. And he led him out of the city. This is interesting. He leads him out of the city to do this miracle, just the same way a few verses later, Jesus leads his disciples out into Caesarea Philippi. I think that that's intentional. I think that this healing miracle is a parable of what's about to come in a spiritual sense with Peter's confession. He takes him by the hand and he gives him the dignity to touch him and to put his hands on him. He first begins this healing process, and the man goes from totally blind to seeing partially, and Jesus stays with him. And he does it again. He touches him again, and then the man has full sight, full, clear vision is restored. And this is the same way that Jesus patiently brings us along to understanding him. Whether we're a new believer and we're still just trying to understand and trying to get what is Jesus all about and what did he do for me, he's patient despite our misunderstandings, despite us not really fully getting it. And for us who are Christians, and maybe you've been walking with Jesus for five or 10 or 50 years, your vision gets blurry at times. And there's this ongoing lifelong process of Jesus laying his hands on you again and bringing spiritual sight so that you would see him and behold him as he truly is for what he came to do and how he came to include you in it. So don't get discouraged if you don't feel like you see him clearly. Come to him boldly. It says in Ephesians 3, 12, that we can come near to him, that, that um, in him and through faith in him, we approach God with freedom and confidence. So I want to encourage you tonight, wherever you're at, if you feel like you see him clearly right now in your life, or whether you feel like your vision of Christ is blurry, come to him with freedom and confidence, knowing that he graciously and patiently is here to open your eyes. So tonight, I want to encourage you with this. Embrace his identity and embrace his mission. And then let Jesus open your eyes and know that he is an all-patient, all-gracious Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us understand you more fully. Help us see you as you truly are. Not just theologically to know that you are the triune God, to know that, Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Messiah who took on human flesh. We need to know that. That is important. But in addition to that, remind us of what you truly came to do, that ultimately the centerpiece of everything that this all of human history is about is you coming to deal with sin and to reconcile humanity to God through your perfect life, through your death on the cross, and through your victorious resurrection. I pray for my brothers and sisters here in the room that you would sustain them, that you would lift them up. For those that are feeling weary, those that are feeling distant from you, lift them up, draw them to yourself, and remind them again of your patience and your grace. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.